spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. We'd love to save more than just Rufus. It's episode 224 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and of course, the Timeless Movie is going to be coming up. This is the end, maybe. We don't know. It seems like you can never really know with this show, but we're going to talk about that with Malcolm Barrett. That's right, Rufus himself is back on the show this week to talk about the big timeless movie and what's in store for Rufus. I mean, it's hey, we've got him on the show. Something's got to be going on with Rufus, right? And you saw him in the first look photos. We'll see how much information we can get out of him and just talk about the show in general that's had such an amazing following since the very, very beginning. And I mean, I'm sad and excited at the same time. We can't wait for the timeless movie on December the 20th. Still have plenty more stuff to get to as well, though. It's what we're reading next. On the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Benjamin Percy, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Pull out the laptop. We've got the tablet we can fire up, or the laptop, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading, and one of my favorite things about Dark Knight's Metal, when DC ran that initiative, was the Batman who laughs, and how evil and just crazy of a character that was. So I was super psyched to see... That character was going to be getting a limited series. So let's talk about it. The Batman Who Laughs, number one, written by, of course, who else could it be? Scott Snyder, Jock on the art, David Barron on the colors, and Sal Cipriano on the letters. Now, what's funny about this book is it kind of starts off like almost any other Batman story. You know, the Cape Crusaders trying to chase down the bad guys and find out what's going on. I'm not going to get into what's going, what happens or anything like that because, again, I don't spoil these. So I don't want to get too deep into this, but... There's a problem that Batman couldn't possibly have expected what they were smuggling what with what they were doing. I, I know that it seems stupid that I can't talk about this, but believe me, it's kind of a major point in the very beginning of the story. And it's very eye-opening what they're using to smuggle, and I don't want to spoil that if you haven't already seen it. So after seeing that, he knows that the Batman who laughs is returned. It's kind of that obvious based on what's going down right now. So after that revelation, we kind of see what the Batman who laughs early motivation motives are, and we get to see a new Nightmare Batman actually brought into the mix. I can tell you that because that's already been all over the place. It's already been kind of to- talked about and introduced, so that's not really a spoiler. That's kind of been put out there already. I won't reveal anything else. I will just say that there's something about this particular Batman that will immediately make your eyes pop out and immediately get your attention. I could tell you that for sure. Now, you you can probably guess which Batman villain is a big part of this first issue because you can't do a story like this and not have this particular villain. Maybe it's stupid for me to keep this person's name a secret, but I'm going to do it anyway. Now, what you don't expect is what happens in the confrontation between Batman and this particular enemy and where it happens as well really, really matters. And to kind of cut to the quick here, the book ends with a very unexpected turn and should set up a really, really major showdown in the following issues. Now, one thing that's really interesting about this book is that memories actually play a really big part of this story. And it feels like the childhood memories are actually used as a little bit of a metaphor once you find out what happens at the end of this book. And that will make perfect sense to you if you've read it or if you plan on reading it once you do. You'll be like, oh, so that's what he was talking about. Trust me, it makes sense. Now, we don't see a whole lot of the Batman who laughs in this issue. But the stage is clearly set here and set quickly as to here's what's going on. Here's where this is going to go. And here's what we're setting up. This isn't like a, oh, this first issue is an introduction and... You know, we'll let you know what's going on in the next issue. No, no, no. It's not 100% clear. The overall motive is still somewhat unclear. You can't reveal too much in issue one, by right? But you get plenty 
about what's going on here. And with the Batman who laughs, that's I mean, the motives are always somewhat clear anyway, especially if you've read Dark Knight's Metal, you know exactly who this character is and what they want anyway. So it doesn't really matter. Now, we know what the Batman who laughs is capable of. We don't know is how things will now shake out based on what happens again at the end of this book and how this thing actually changes both sides of this story from the Batman who laughs perspective and from Batman himself. So, I mean, there's a whole lot of mystery here in what I'm talking about, but believe me when I tell you, it's intense, it's gripping, it's everything you would want this miniseries to start out to be. And then you have Jock, whose art has always had a really nice edge to it. I always loved his work in that Green Arrow story that he did as well, and it works really, really well with a story like this. I mean, it just fits the tone so, so perfectly. And this is a pull for me, man. I mean, I've really wanted this to be great. It was. I was not let down at all. And I shouldn't be surprised with Scott Snyder and the teams that he brings on and the editors involved here. Bravo to everybody because this one is definitely a huge winner already. Now, speaking of something that's been talked about a lot lately, and that's The Witcher. You know, we've got that series coming in Netflix. Well, we have a new comic book series from Dark Horse as well. It's The Witcher of Flesh and Flame. It's issue one of four this time. Batman Who Laughs was issue one of six, by the way, in case you were wondering. Immediately when I opened up the front page of this book and I saw the names involved, I shuddered because if you've listened to this show, you know how bad I am at pronouncing names. I promise to do my best and apologize in advance if I butcher anybody's name. Alexandra Matyoka on the story, Travis Curret on the adaptation, Mariana Strychowska on the art, Lauren Aff on the colors, and Steve Dutrow on the letters. Okay, now that I've thoroughly humiliated myself, let's talk about this book. Now, an injured girl finds himself in Novigrad, and he's catching up with the master Van Shagen. Now, it turns out, the master himself has a problem with someone visiting his youngest daughter unseen. And he thinks that, you know, this person's not human. He's like, hey, nobody can get up there without somebody knowing about it. So it's got to be some sort of a monster or something like that. Now, when Girl investigates, he quickly finds out not only who it is, but how she's being visited. And it just happens to be a familiar face, which I won't tell you who it is. I'll let you find that out on your own. If you're a Witcher fan, you're going to know what's going on, though. Now, what happens after this is very quick and another mysterious transportation takes Geralt in the person in question very, very far from Novigrad. I could tell you that right now. Now, you know what they say about curiosity, right? And it certainly seems to pose a problem at the end of this first issue. You know, one of those things where it's like, if you left well enough alone, you probably wouldn't be in this situation. But yeah, here we are. Now, That's kind of all I can really tell you without spoiling anything. So I will say this, though. The story was certainly entertaining. Witcher fans will will know these characters. There just really wasn't much to this first issue, unfortunately. I mean, even the story has to start... I know the story has to start somewhere. But it feels like we didn't really get anywhere for a series that's only four issues long. I mean, this thing doesn't really have that far to go. And it just doesn't seem like... We got off to a very fast start. Obviously, you know, things happened, and, you know, there's a pairing there that you know, and you know what their next step is and whatever's going to happen, but there's the larger picture isn't clear at all. I mean, it doesn't even seem hinted to at this point, and maybe that's the point, but when when you've only got four issues, my worry now is that How much of this thing is going to be rushed? That is my biggest concern. So, I mean, there's certainly time to make up for this. But, you mean, when you don't even really seem to have a main focus of the story yet, other than, you know, Geralt and this person that he's with, that's not really giving me a whole lot of confidence. Now, what does give me confidence, though, is the art, which is super solid. Great detail there. Really seems to carry this first issue, I mean, quite a bit. I mean, there's a lot of detail work there. There's not a whole lot in the way of, you know, big action sequences or anything. There's certainly plenty going on. And again, the, the book is enjoyable for the dialogue, but the art really carries this first issue for, for me. And now, while I enjoy this first issue, my caution bulb very much lit for this second issue. And I'm going to have to see something pretty significant or a very significant shift in the story 
to want to continue with this one. So I'm going to give this a pickup because I did enjoy the dialogue. I do think that the book was written well. I just don't feel like I got enough out of this. So my my opinion certainly could change. I can end up loving this. After the second issue, we'll just have to wait and see. That's going to do it for what we're reading. Up next, going to dive into the Elseworlds and talk about the DC crossover event filled with spoilers next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Echo Callum, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Just like they said on the show themselves, it's becoming an annual thing. The big DC TV Arrowverse crossover Elseworlds just happened, and here is my spoiler-filled review of the entire thing. So yeah, a lot of spoilers going to talk about all of the stuff that happened. Am I going to recap every little bit? No, because you probably saw it if you're interested in this at all. You probably saw it. So let's just talk about it, shall we? Of course, you know kind of how it starts out with the monitor giving John Deegan, the doctor, the book to kind of reshape reality the way he sees fit because a crisis is coming. And it turns out he's testing universes to see which one would be able to go up against this threat. That's basically the gist of everything that happens. And of course, you've got the body swap between Barry Allen and Oliver Queen, which I got to tell you, right off the bat in that first crossover episode on Sunday night, just the way that that was dealt with and the way that they acted in each other's bodies and how everyone was just so taken aback about how things were going on, especially for Oliver and Barry. Hats off to Grant Gustin and Stephen Amell because that was so hilarious for me. And not only that, just the way that they interact with each other and the way that they play off of each other's characters is just incredible. Every time that they're together doing anything in this DC realm, it's just... It's First of all, it's different every time. Second of all, the dynamic between Oliver and Barry is one of my favorite things about these crossovers and just how different they are and how they're not shy about those differences and talking about them, but how those differences tend to evolve into more similarities and what they learn from each other. And they learned a lot from each other in this crossover and how everything went down. It was one of my favorite parts, once again, of this year's crossover and, and getting to live as each other even for a short time, we get to see at the end there what they they talked about, what they learned from each other, and how they could both be better people going forward and better heroes. So I just think that that's a really cool part of these crossovers. And I mean, they're not the only ones that we got to see as you know different versions of this, themselves. You got to see Cisco, the crime boss, who was you know like like the slick crime boss, which was very very hilarious as well. We got to see a different side of. We got to see a different side of side of Alex Danvers and the the whole relationship with her and Kara, even though it was a different Alex, how they were able to connect. It was another really, really amazing part. And we got to see a, the few other sides of some other characters as well. We got to find out that in another universe, John Diggle is, is Green Lantern. That was a little nugget that kind of passed me by when I watched it the first time. And when I watched it again, I went, wait a second, is, is he saying what I think he's saying? So in John Wesley Shipp's Flash universe... John Diggle's the Green Lantern. I'm just saying. So that, that that was one of the revelations that we got. I mean, just the interactions between Barry and Oliver. One of my favorite things, easily. One of my other favorite things was, and something I need immediately now, how about the relationship between Tyler Hoechlin's Superman and Bitsy Tullock's Lois Lane? I got to tell you, the the second she said, and I'm paraphrasing because I'm not sure exactly how she said it, when she looked at him and said, if you don't go, I will, Smallville, the second the word Smallville came out of her mouth, I'm like, I'm sold, done, need the series now, since you guys aren't doing Superman movies anymore, can we get this, please? Because just the, the little bit of them that we got, and we got to see them by themselves a couple of times, so we kind of got a glimpse of what a Superman and Lois Lane series would be like. It was magic. I, I was just, I was taken away. It was it was absolute magic for me. I, I had to have this immediately. And then we kind of find out at the end that we might not be getting it for a while because they're going back to Argo. And why? Because she's pregnant. I geeked out way more than I should. I don't think I've ever geeked out about a preg- pregnancy more, except for when my wife was pregnant, of course. I don't think I've ever been like, oh my God, are you kidding me? This is actually happening. 
Because now we're getting a Superboy of some kind. It's going to be John. And then once I realize, well, if it's going to be John, are we going to start to follow the Peter Tomasi rebirth, you know, family Superman kind of thing? Because I got to tell you, I'd be all over that so much. But I mean, I'm kind of getting off topic here. I'm just saying a Superman series with the two of them and almost anybody else, right? You could almost put anybody else in that series and it wouldn't matter. As long as you give me the two of them, I'm good to go. You want to bring somebody from Supergirl and Land? I mean, you want to make James Olsen a part of it? I'm fine with that. You want to put it on Argo? I don't care. Just give me this because just the dynamic between the two of them, it was amazing. And, and, and Elizabeth Tullock, just such a great job. Is Lois Lane. I think she captured the character so, so well in a way that, with all due respect to Amy Adams, in a way that I don't think we've seen in a while, I think that she gets the character in the small sample size that we got. She gets this character and she plays every aspect of Lois Lane so, so well, especially when you get to see her jump in on that final fight against Amazo and against Black Suit Superman, who of course was John Deegan, you know, used the book to become Superman sort of thing. We get to see her kind of jump in there and get her hands dirty a little bit, but also put herself in danger at the same time. She wasn't afraid to do that. I'm like, that's Lois right there. Right there. That's everything that Lois should be. So she just gets the character so, so much. And speaking of getting the character, we had high hopes for Ruby Rose's Batwoman, didn't we? That's a lot of pressure. And there was a lot of criticism that went with it. Before we even saw anything from her, and she had to quit Twitter. Remember all that stuff? Well... For anybody that was doubting this at all or was upset about it at all, did you see what I saw? Because what I saw was the Batwoman that deserves her own series. This is the Batwoman that we need and that we deserve. And man, did they explain away Bruce Wayne not being there well. They explained the Batman not being there really, really well. It's like, yeah, he's been gone for three years. Don't know why. Don't know where he went. But they're opening, the, they're leaving the door open. You see, you never shut the door on Batman, do you? Because you got to figure that at some point, there's at least a chance that we're going to see Batman in the DC TV universe, right? But we'll get to the whole conclusion of what exactly we learned from this here in a few minutes. I want to stick on Batwoman for a second because Ruby Rose, she really just has that edge to her, doesn't she? She has that hard edge that you need from a Bat family character. She looked legit in the suit. Didn't get to see her in action a ton. Got to see a little bit. Got to see some teases. But we also got to see that, you know, Kate Kane actually has a very interesting side to her life as well. So it's not just a toss away. We get to see that, you know, she's going to be starting a high-end real estate firm and what used to be Wayne Tower. And so, so you understand that she's got plenty of stuff going on. You know what else we saw? Those names on the door at Arkham Asylum, right? Those familiar Bat Rogues Gallery names, right, that you wonder, okay... Now that Gotham's over, are these fair game now? Is this what we're going to see in a Batwoman series? So part of this Elseworlds event was just one giant tease, if we're being honest. It really, really was. It was a huge tease of, okay, here's what you might be getting. Here's what you probably will be getting. Here's what else you might be getting. That was a big part of what happened here, but not to lose sight of what actually happened, the whole reshaping of reality and how they dealt with it. I will admit that at first... How they first ended up getting the book. I'm like, really? That's how it ends? That's, that's, that's what's going to happen? They're just going to fix everything that simply? And everything was, is going to be fine? And then, when that doesn't work out and it all falls apart, I was like, okay, alright. Th- th- I see what you did there. You tried to make me angry knowing full well that somebody was going to freak out and say that that was too easy. And then you made it not easy at all. Okay, I see what you did there. So I fell for it a little bit. I'll be honest. I fell for it a little bit. I I, I should have known that it wasn't going to be that simple. But to see what, what this crossover did really, really well is it gave everybody the opportunity to be the hero. I mean, you got to see Oliver play his part, obviously, with, with shooting the arrow into the book. You got to see Superman play his part in actually getting the book back and almost fixing reality, but also, you know, kind of fighting off... Deegan at the same time at the end. You got to see Supergirl and Flash do th- their thing where they slow down time and almost die. And also Oliver making the deal with the Monitor to keep them alive and kind of learning a lot about himself in the process, actually. We got to see Oliver step up in a way 
I don't think that he ever has before, and I'll be interested to see how that changes things for Arrow going forward, if that's going to kind of carry over. And we also get to see, you know, Oliver kind of, we, we know that he loves Felicity, right? But I think that this is a different level now. I think he made a lot of realizations about his life and what's important. And he sort of did that, sort of did that before this season, right? Before everything fell apart with Ricardo Diaz. But now I think things might be different. So I'm just very curious. I think of all the shows coming back, Arrow's the one that's most curious to me as to what exactly is going to be happening, especially with Oliver and how that's going to change. I don't think much is going to change on the Flash side or even the Supergirl side. Although now we know Supergirl's kind of, you know, she's on an island now, right? Because Superman's going to be in Argo with Lois to have this baby, and he says, oh, I know the world's in good hands with you, cuz, sort of thing. So now when Lex Luthor comes in later on in the season, and Superman's not there to help, it'll be pretty much explained. It explained why he wasn't there, because he was on Argo before. That's why he wasn't there to help her with this whole world killer mess. So, everything's explained in this crossover, not just for a plot hole of what happened last season, but of what's going to be coming up in the futures of this season and maybe even beyond that. So I love that they're tying up these loose ends for stuff that happened before and that might be happening a little bit later on because that was going to be a question going forward and now it isn't. And you let the other questions linger for a little bit, which again, I don't mind. But this all leads us to the whole there's a crisis coming thing. And the second the monitor said that, which I thought he did a great job, by the way, I thought that you know, you played that role pretty much exactly how you needed him to, right? So we know Crisis on Infinite Earths is the next crossover. That's something that I don't think they, they've they announced what the next crossover is going to be this early ever. And of course, I'm sure everybody is going to be involved in that, right? This might be the one that brings Black Lightning in too, by the way. I think, I think this might be the one that finally brings Black Lightning into the fold. I know the Legends will be a part of this. And we saw Psycho Pirate, right? We saw him debut in this crossover. You see him with Deegan there at the end at Arkham Asylum too, right? And Batwoman knows that something's wrong, something's up, and that she knows there's going to be a problem. So I'm just very curious to see if they actually follow Crisis on Infinite Earths to the letter. Do you kill Barry? I mean, I say kill Barry in quotes, of course. Do Do you kill Supergirl? Because do you end? Do you almost end two of your shows by doing that? I don't know. Maybe you don't necessarily end Flash, right? Because that show could obviously live on beyond that. I mean, you could have Wally come back. There's a couple of other different things that you could do as well, I'm sure. So Flash wouldn't necessarily end. It would just be drastically different. But Supergirl is a different one. So if you kill Supergirl, how does that show go on? Or do you just replace that? with Superman and give me what I want and be done with it. I would like to have Superman and Supergirl shows in a perfect world. And I'm actually kind of good with either or, either or as well. But I really want that Superman series so, so bad. But here's another thing that didn't go unnoticed for me. It's when Kara is talking, it's what's, excuse me, Supergirl's talking to Batwoman. And, you know, there's a little bit of polite banter there. They know who each other is, ha, ha, ha. And then kind of off the cuff, she, uh, Supergirl says, you know, we'd make a great team. And Batwoman says, world's finest. And I went, whoa, didn't I talk about this whole world's finest idea where you're going to give me just a bunch of limited series and everybody gets their little slice of the pie, you know, give somebody eight episodes and then move on and give this person eight episodes. I'm not saying that's what's going to happen, but when she said world's finest, I'm like, you could totally turn one of these shows into our world's finest and do whatever the hell you want with it. If we're being honest, you could absolutely do whatever you wanted with it. And it would be okay because the name of the show is World Finest. It's not Supergirl. It's not Batwoman. It's not Arrow. It's World's Finest. So you could basically do whatever you wanted. So, I mean, those are just some of the things that I loved. I thought there was a lot of good fan service in here. You got to have some of that when you do something like this. I love the fact that we got to see Oliver's wife, real-life wife, excuse me, Stephen Amell's real-life wife as Nora Freeze. and got to see them actually throw down a little bit. That was really, really interesting. We got to see, of course, Scarecrow's Fear Toxin come into play. You got to see a nice epic battle there at the end. This crossover had it all. And you could say what you want about it. I'm not even going to bring up any of the criticisms because, quite frankly, I don't have any. And you know why? This was a ton of fun. I had a blast watching it. 
I think if you're a DC fan like I am and, and grew up such a huge DC fan, there was so much here for you. The, the, it made linear sense the way the story went down. I could have actually done with another one. If they had thrown Legends in there, give me one more episode, I could have done that. But you know what? You didn't drag it out either. And to a certain degree, I really, really appreciate that. Probably the best crossover that they've ever done because it it had an impact. It was a ton of fun. And there was just... And you introduced me to the Batwoman character and gave me the Superman and Lois Lane stuff that I really, really wanted. This is a 10 out of 10, however the hell... I mean, I know I usually come up with some sort of clever, clever thing to say. You know what? This is just flat out no BS. 10 out of 10. If you haven't watched the Elseworlds crossover yet, I mean, get on it. I don't care if you're a DC fan or not. It's a lot of fun. You'll enjoy it. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of the DC Elseworlds TV crossover. Up next, there's still some nerd news to talk about. So let's do it on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is voice actor Roger Craig Smith, and you guys are listening, you lucky people, to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. And we're back. Got a heaping help and get to, so let's do it. It's time for nerd news and starting things off with something that, quite frankly, may or may not actually be true, and that is the first look at Sonic from the upcoming Sonic the Hedgehog movie. You know we actually got a legit poster from Paramount, which actually looked pretty decent other than the fact that, man, Sonic's legs are huge. That was one thing that, that seemed to stick out. There was there was a definition there, and that seemed a little weird. But then, you know, as the internet tends to do, things tend to start to leak out. And it was the poster that came out, I think it was the next day, actually, that kind of got everybody's attention. Now, this was posted by a couple of the different Twitter users. The one I saw it on was Wario64, who... I will say has had a pretty good track record of posting some really accurate stuff. So that's one of the things that makes me think that this could actually be an accurate depiction. And we see Sonic, and you've probably seen it by now. And honestly, first of all, it looks like the poster could be about a year old before any of the casting was announced or anything like that. But at the same time, it just looks creepy, doesn't it? I mean, there's no other way to get around it. I mean, it's like a, do you lift, bro? Sonic. That's exactly how I thought to describe it. It's like a Cookie Monster is going to end up on the Maury show. It just looks bizarre with the fur and even the, the sneakers look weird. And I'm not saying that he needs to wear pants. It just it just looks strange. And maybe it looks strange because it's so different. And I didn't. And that's not what I expected. But at the same time, is this the way you want to go? Really? Really? That's the look. You want to go for it, it's creepy. And I know that part of it is because, you know, when you grow up loving something, as far as characters go, you have an image of that character in your head. If you see anything but that image depicted in any way, it's going to be upsetting for you. I understand that. I get it. Maybe that's part of my hang-up here. Although I was always more of a Mario fan than a Sonic fan, if I'm being honest. I was a Nintendo guy. So I'm not the biggest supporter that Sonic's ever seen. I'll be the first to admit that. But at the same time, even as someone who's not a diehard, this is creepy to me. Like the way that IDW did the Sonic comics. Really well done. The way that we saw Sonic in Wreck-It Ralph. Also really well done. Granted, these are not complete features. This was not mixing live action and animation or CGI. Neither of those cases. All I'm saying is, is that this seems like quite a departure, and that doesn't mean the kids won't love it. I realize that this movie's probably not for me anyway, and my opinion doesn't matter because I'm a little bit older. But you know what? My son's four years old. It's going to matter to him. So I'll be curious to see how he feels about it and kids that are older than him because, quite frankly, that's who this movie's really going to be for. And, and I think that that's more than confirmed at this point. We'll find out when the movie comes out, though, won't we? So we haven't really seen any trailers yet. Or anything like that. I know I'm the guy that says don't freak out. Based on a first look or a poster or something. It might not even be true. And I get that. But this is not a good first impression. You want to make a good first impression. Remember years ago. A couple years ago now actually right. When the first look at Jason Momoa. As Aquaman came out. Actually that was around episode 50. Of this show when we're coming up on 250. That should tell you how long ago it was. So almost four years ago. Wasn't it? To me, that was a good first impression. 
I knew we were getting our we were getting ourselves into that it might not have been perfect, but the first impression was good. I have the exact opposite feeling about this Sonic movie. Hopefully, I turn out to be wrong about that. Here's something I also kind of have, have a bad feeling about, and that is Marvel announcing the Cosmic Ghost Rider destroys Marvel history comic book series, issue one of six, as far as I can remember anyway. Now, the first issue will be due out on March the 6th. That much I can tell you. Written by comedian Paul Shear and Far Cry writer Nick Giovanetti, who has also done the Deadpool biannual and a couple of other things. Now... There was a bunch of teasers released, like who gave the Fantastic Four their powers, and you know who found Captain America in the ice before the Avengers, who brought the Amazing Spider-Man back after Spider-Man No More, and there was a couple more after that. Now, this is also billed as the quote rewrite the Marvel history, rewrite the history of the Marvel universe. Right off the bat, I gotta wonder, okay, is this an incontinuity thing or not? Second of all. I'm thinking, really? Marvel just cannot leave well enough alone on their comic side, can they? I mean, obviously you want to do something different. You want to do something eye-catching. But do you have to rewrite every little thing all the time? Do you always have to screw with established history every freaking year just to get attention? That's the crazy thing. They don't. The comics sell just fine. Without the theatrics, I don't understand what the point of doing this is. And again, Cosmic Ghost Rider, really? I mean, I know that the, the, the character's got kind of a good following of the fans. He's become very popular very quickly. But if that's the case, you've got Don Cates sitting right here, who co-created the character, would have done just a fine job with this and would have given a lot of authenticity to it. Not that this writing team won't. They're two very good writers, but at the same time, this is the kind of thing that if you're going to make a big deal out of it, you probably want the co-creator to be a part of it, right? If you think that enough of his character, you should think that much of his ability to write this as well. And that's why I'm wondering if this is in continuity or not. Because think about how Marvel holds things so closely to themselves, right? You've got Jason Aaron sitting right there. You've got Dan Slott. You've got Don Cates. I mean, hell, I even throw Nick Spencer in there. These are the names that Marvel trusts with their with their lineage, with exactly what they're doing, with their stories, with their characters. These are writers that they will go to bat for every time and throw a thousand books at, right? You're not being used in this. So that's what makes me wonder how big of a deal this really is, and maybe I'm overreacting to this. Maybe this is just going to be one of those fun, out-of-continuity stories, almost like a what-if if you will. And that would be fun. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to say this book's not going to be good. I'm not saying it's not going to be fun. It just reeks of Marvel trying to rewrite their own history again because what they did in the past wasn't good enough and everything they established needs to be destroyed or rebranded or remodeled. Just leave it. Give me new characters like Cosmic Ghost Rider. I realize that that's not completely new, but let's do more of that. Infinity Warps. That was pretty neat. Again, not necessarily going to be in continuity, but that was neat. Let's do a little bit more of that. I don't understand why they've got to constantly screw with the history that got them where they are today. See, I'm already losing my voice again, yelling about this stuff so much. So let's go to some trailer talk, shall we? How about let's start with Godzilla King of the Monsters from Legendary. Of course, we know that's going to be out in May of 2019. It's almost like this trailer says, you know what? Forget the humans. This is an all-out all kaiju war, and here's everything that's going to be a part of it. Now, we don't see a whole lot of warring, per se. We do get to see some of the kaiju. I mean, we got to see Ghidorah. We got to see Mothra and Rodan. We actually got some posters, character posters, released a little bit after the trailer as well. It looked really, really neat. But basically, this is their chance to be everything that the first Godzilla movie wasn't and focus on the kaiju for once. Give me as much of the kaiju monsters as you possibly can. But there's even a tease in the trailer for even more. It looks like there's going to be plenty more. Maybe even some new ones thrown into the mix as well. And we get to see, yes, we do get to see Millie Bobby Brown and some of the other characters. And we know that the humans are trying to find out, okay, which one of these monsters is on our side and which one of these monsters basically wants to try and destroy the entire planet. And it's basically a... 
Battle for the Alpha, which was another line that was in there that I thought was really, really neat. I was like, okay, who's going to step up and challenge Godzilla and be the monster of this planet? I, thought, I think that's kind of a neat concept. Will they actually be able to execute it? I don't know, but all I do know is the looks that we did see of the kaiju are pretty cool, and if you give me a bunch of those battles, even if the story is a little weak, you give me enough of the action to make up for it, I think I'm going to be good. So if they, if they just don't give me humans for an hour and a half and maybe a half hour of monster fights, then then I'll be good. Just give me and what other Godzilla and Kaiju monster fans want. Give us exactly what we want. You're teasing it enough. Let's just do it. Let's let's stop messing around and do that. We talk about something that's a little bit different too. How about Bright Burn from Sony Pictures, which will be on a Memorial Day of 2019. Now this is basically the origin story of Superman, isn't it? I mean, you got the pod crashing to Earth, the couple that finds the baby that's always wanted one sort of thing, and they take him in and raise him and tell him how special he is sort of thing, yep. But then there's a very sinister twist. So basically, it's just a, what if Superman became evil once he was a kid? And this is an evil, the powers of Superman, almost to the letter, right? And it, it just seems so similar. But at the same time, there's creepy ways that he finds out that he has, that he has his powers, right? When he gets, gets him draw the symbol, you see that he's drawn to something in the barn. And it's always in the barn, isn't it? it, it one time, I'd like to see somebody find something on a farm like this and not hide it in the barn. That's, the, that's just that's one thing I ask. But it just looks like it's creepy and interesting and different. That's the bottom line here. It's absolutely different. James Gunn is going to be blending a superhero-style movie with horror, which really shows his range, first of all. But second of all, you're basically combining the two hottest genres of movies right now. Horror movies doing very well. Superhero movies still doing very, very well. Why not combine the two? It's like somebody woke up one day and said, gee, that would be a great idea. Let's try that. And it's also Sony jumping the gun and getting there before the New Mutants movie, isn't it? Or around the same time, which was supposed to be kind of a horror movie in its own right, where, you know, taking the X-Men into the horror genre. So who's going to be able to do it better? I tend to think that Brightburn has a little bit better of a concept going for themselves. And if this is done and done well, it's going to spawn way more of these and maybe even open the door for Marvel and DC and some of the other publishers as well to get their horror stories put up there too. And I, I don't think that's going to be a stretch. I mean, we've also got Infidel coming from Image Comics, but I'm talking about superhero horror, which is something we're not really seeing a lot of right now. And Brightburn could be a good start for that. Now, how about we do some quick hits, How shall we? How about Chris Messina being cast as Victor Zaz in the Birds of Prey movie, which was reported by multiple outlets? You want to talk about Birds of Prey being a rated R superhero movie and we've already got black mask now victor zaz this is going to be rated r as hell with black mask and victor zaz and then you just throw in renee montoya the huntress black canary i mean this is going to work out really really well i think if this stays rated r it's just going to be an all-out just war you could just see that this is coming it's going to just it's not going to apologize for exactly what it's going to be, and I think that that's amazing if that's what happens. Sticking in the DC Universe a little bit, we have Lou Ferrigno Jr., yes, the son of the Hulk himself, is going to be cast as our man in Stargirl. That's according to TV Line, but the Stargirl casting does not stop there. Joel McHale, yes, that Joel McHale, is going to play Starman, according to Variety, on Stargirl on DC Universe as well. The only reason this bums me out a little bit because now I'm wondering if Joel McHale would be able to do Quantum and Woody at this point for Valiant. Because I think I still think that he's perfect for that. And now this might prevent him from doing that. That Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. Or maybe it opens the door for somebody else to be a part of that. That might be a little bit more deserving. I think this is interesting casting. And I think that it's cool that we could see Lou Ferrigno Jr. in the DC Universe. Of course, dad Lou Ferrigno was Hulk. In Marvel, the TV series that lasts for a while, Lou Ferrigno Jr., you've seen him in SWAT recently. He's good. I mean, he certainly will be able to play the role. It's not like we saw Lou Ferrigno. I mean, it's not like we saw Our Man for very long on DC TV before, isn't it? So it's not like recasting him. 
is that big of a deal anyway. So, and the DC Universe casting didn't start there. This one's interesting to me too. How about Ian Ziering playing Blue Devil on Swamp Thing? Not according to Deadline. Now, you know, Blue Devil's the stuntman kind of turned movie, movie star who became famous, famous for playing Blue Devil. Not just, you know, as far as the show is concerned, but actually in the show, Blue Devil is a movie character that gets played. And then, you know, of course, something happens and he really becomes the Blue Devil. And whether that that's going to happen in the first season of Swamp Thing or not, we don't know yet. We tend to think that it's going to, right? And that that's who one of the, or maybe the main villain of Swamp Thing is going to be, which I'm fine with if that's what they want to do. You got to start somewhere in the first season. This is going to be very focused on Swamp Thing anyway, just in general. So I don't know why, yeah, just why not do this? And certainly if you're going to have horror elements in it as well, I think this would certainly fit that bill. So I like this one. The Punisher is going to be premiering season two on Netflix in January, which again, a lot earlier than we thought. That worked out really well for Daredevil, didn't it? I mean, as far as the show being good, it did. But as far as it getting canceled, it didn't. So I'm thinking by February, we find out that Punisher is going to be canceled by Netflix as well, no matter how good the show is, because that's what we know is going to happen. And then the Venom sequel, by the way, is happening. We know that now. That was announced on Discussing Film in a recent interview. And, yeah, I mean, we saw the teaser, right, for Carnage at the end of the first movie. This is coming. We knew it was coming. It was almost a foregone conclusion they were going to get a sequel. The rating of the sequel is going to be the key to this whole thing. And can you do a movie that is with Carnage and Venom in PG-13? I don't know that you can. And I'm hearing a lot of reviews so far about Once Upon a Deadpool saying that a PG-13 Deadpool movie just doesn't work. So be careful what you wish for there, Sony. One more thing for you. Scott Derrickson has announced he will return to direct a Doctor Strange sequel. Looks like they're in the very ending portion of finalizing that deal. Now, according to the Hollywood reporter filming will begin in 2020. Looks like a release of 2021. And it really, again, it's one of those deals where if you saw Dr. Strange, this, the, the setting was really set for a sequel in that movie as well. Wasn't it? I mean, with everything that went down with the ancient one and, 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 you know, I was actually a little bit surprised that we got Dormammu as the main villain in the first one anyway. But, I mean, what it does kind of do a little bit is because you know you're going to have Avengers Endgame before that. It's one of those things where you go, well, I guess we know who's going to be surviving Avengers Endgame, don't we? And that's Doctor Strange. But, I mean, you know the whole Baron Mordo thing still has to come to a head anyway. So I'm pretty sure that that's what's going to be a part of this sequel. But, I mean, just... Just all of this stuff alone, so much to look forward to in the next couple of years. Before my voice gives way, that's going to do it for Nerd News, because we still have to talk to Malcolm Barrett about the Timeless movie. We'll do that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Sean Ryan. And I'm Eric Kripke. And we're the creators of Timeless on NBC, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. So it's the most wonderful time of the year for a couple of reasons, not just because of the holidays, but because we know we have a two-hour timeless finale movie that's going to be happening on Thursday, December the 20th at 8 p.m. Eastern on NBC. And it's so great to have this guy back on the show. It's Rufus himself, Malcolm Barrett. Malcolm, what's up, man? Uh, Apparently, I'm back. Yeah, apparently. Sounds like like that. I feel like like John Wick. I feel like people keep asking me if I'm back. I'm thinking I'm back. You have come back from the dead. Well, we don't know that officially yet. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get to that in a second. But first, Maybe let's look, yeah, let's take a look back for a second, though. I mean, canceled after the first season, then saved for a second season, then canceled after a second season, then saved for a two-hour finale movie. So talk about the range of emotions from that first cancellation to where we are now. Honestly, you know what? It's, t- it's hard to even um, place what emotion happened when because it's happened so frequently. Uh, with this show, you know, we went from being canceled on a Thursday and, and me trying to figure that out and deal with that to being re- revived on a Saturday. Um, and then, you know, you got the second show and then, you know, we weren't sure how it was going to go because, you know, the, the critics and the reviews of our second season were even better than our first, which was, you know, amazing for us because, you know, we basically had less money. 
it was a little more contained story-wise, and we just sort of brought out the character, and, and the audience responded. So it was slightly surprising to find out that we were canceled, but you know, by the it took so long for it to happen after the season was over, the writing started to become on the wall, um, and then you know the audience could smell it, and they started going crazy, and then they started going after you know, sort of trolling NBC's Twitter. And that's how that sort of inside joke of Jan started. Um, and then, you know, the helicopters at Comic-Con and, and banners and things like that happened. And, um, and so that was kind of crazy because uh, there was um, a sort of a, an idea that a movie could happen. Um, and so it was like, okay, all right, this, this is possible. And then it was finally announced and it was, uh, really sort of crazy and, and, and fun. Um, and then now this billboard thing's happened, you know, and it's sort of exciting. You know, we, I literally was in my hometown for Thanksgiving and, um, luckily my, my flight got delayed, um, in a sort of Christmas miracle, holiday miracle, uh, <laughs> my flight got delayed and, and I was, because I was supposed to be gone. And then, um, literally at midnight before my flight, is when the um, banners in Times Square went up. Um, and I was able to see that, which is my hometown. I'm from Brooklyn. Um, not necessarily Times Square. I wasn't born in a laser tag. Um, <laughs> and so it was, it was just a really, it was a really cool feeling to, to see that up there. Um, and a couple fans were around when I was there in a freezing cold, Excellent. which was kind of crazy. Um, and so it was, it was, and it got bigger the next day. And I think my mom showed up and, and made a sort of grand entrance for herself. So, you know, to really see your name in lights for, you know, an audience-based campaign asking to bring your character back um, is sort of, um, what's the opposite of humility? Uh, Uh, No, I I think that covers it pretty well. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so it was, was, it's really exciting. And, you know, again, we, the movie hasn't even started yet. So although we're done shooting and there's that feeling of, okay, we're done shooting, there's, there's still the whole lead up to the actual movie. And this is a show that's really good at dying and coming back. So, you know, it's, it's hard to express at any given time how you're supposed to feel. Speaking of that, I had an epiphany the other day that I wanted to share with you because I think it's kind of interesting. I, I I know there's been a lot of star Wars references on the show, but I basically figured out that, that Rufus is Spock and I'll tell you why. So season one, he's the smartest guy on the ship. He tends to be the most logical one. Okay. Then season two, he dies at the hands of the enemy, just like Spock and Wrath of Khan. So then now, a finale movie where he, the basically the basis is the search for Rufus, and we maybe see him resurrected. So am I crazy, or does that sound about right? That's about right. That's about right. These guys, um, you know, they don't skimp on the references. You know, uh, you know, they're big fanboys. There's an idea of fanboys being driven all through this. You know, season one, we definitely have the whole us beat me, you know, Gia saving me via the Star Wars references. You know, there is a sort of, you know, bringing back of Spock (laughs) sort of uh, aspect to it that I love. There's a triple in the first season that got sort of cut out of the framing of the shot. But we we do our best to make those references uh, in there. Yeah, yeah. There's In in her apartment, when when me and G.R. are playing video games, there's actually a triple on, on the desk. I don't know if it made it into the shot, but it's definitely there. Wow. Now, I mean, I know you can't say much about the movie, but let's talk about we're going to see anyway. I mean, we, we, you get to see a little bit of this in the season two finale, but who would you say is taking Rufus's death the hardest? I mean, it seems like that's a long list. Uh, you know what? It is a long list. Um, you know, I think Gia, Gia and Mason probably take it the hardest. You know what I mean? I think, I think Mason is sort of a father figure for me, and, you know, Gia is my lady love, you know? So I, I don't think anyone takes it as hard as them or is as valiant about trying to figure out a way to reverse that as much as they are. Um, and then after that probably comes, you know, um, Wyatt and, and Lucy, um, you know, they're probably most active, you know, because they're the ones probably with the most power to do so. Um, and the ones most likely to go on the trip. Um, so yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely my girlfriend and my father figure. Yeah, I think that, that sounds about right. But let's talk about future Wyatt and Lucy here for a second that we kind of got a peek of yeah. at the finale there. Now, um, of the two of them, who would you say is the most different from their present selves, Wyatt or Lucy? It's hard to say. I, you know what? I would say, you know what? Actually, it's not that hard. Lucy. Lucy is definitely um, the one who's most different. I think 
Wyatt has always has been a soldier since we've seen him. And when you see him in the future, he's sort of a more grizzled soldier. Um, you know, Lucy definitely goes from being a librarian to a sort of soldier, this sort of, you know, Laura Croft-esque looking uh, lady there. So I think she's probably the most different and is the most changed by the events that happened from the finale leading up to, you know, her being the future version of herself. Now, with this movie airing so close to Christmas and the holidays, I know the showrunners have said that the holidays will definitely be a part of things. So when you're reading the script, do you feel like that sort of fit in really well with the story that was being told? Oh, 100%. It's the story of Jesus in the manger. Um, we went back to that time, <laughs> so it really fits in. Um, nice. No, um, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the, the they're really good at incorporating the holiday season. I mean, in all honesty, and and, and they're good. They're, they have a deft hand, and they're pretty subtle writing-wise. Um, but we do sort of deal with current events and we deal with the holiday season and it's all entrenched within the script it's you know you can't separate it from from the events from the arc of the story from the arc of the characters um you know and they picked uh time periods that you know really related to that you know what i mean i think you could i think what's what's good about it and it's history right so it's it's wrought with places to explore but you could explore the holiday itself and the history of the holiday and and that, uh, every Macanasian inversion of that um, historically, or you could just explore things that happened on Christmas Day, sure. and you'd still have tons and tons of material um, to base this episode on. And so, you know, I think the writers picked what was most interesting to them, and what was probably most relevant to us um, in these modern times. And I think it's a really good amalgamation of that. Now, when we talked at the beginning of season two, I asked you how uncomfortable it was going to be having Garcia Flynn as part of the team. Now, we saw how that sort of evolved over the season, but how is it going to be having Flynn possibly now be a part of getting Rufus back? Yeah, you know, I think it's an I think it's an interesting payoff to see um, the results of Flynn and Rufus's relationship um, as a result of the second season and how that affect. Uh, the future of their relationship and that affects what choices they make as a result of that. And I think, I think you will see the results of the antagonistic slash friendship relationship that we built in the first two seasons. Talking to Malcolm Barrett, of course, plays Rufus on Timeless. Can't wait for that two hour finale movie. That's going to be happening Thursday, December 20th at 8 PM Eastern on NBC. Now, Malcolm, I know that, you know, of course, Rufus dies at the hands of Emma from Rittenhouse, of course, played by Amy Wershing. Now, we know that, um, Annie, excuse me, Annie Wershing. Now, we know that she's been very pregnant, so are you guys going to be terrorized by a pregnant woman in this movie? What's going on there? Uh, her baby's Rittenhouse. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> um, but, uh, we, wrote, we wrote that in. We've been working on that storyline for about nine, ten months now. Um, so it worked out perfectly. Um, no, um, I think what you'll, you'll see Annie Wershing as, um, the character, um, we sort of cover up the pregnancy, uh, cause that's what TV's good at. Um, of course. so yeah, you're actually still going to get the sort of streamlined, uh, version of her character. She pulled a sort of Gal Gadot. She's, uh, she's actually in there and she's still just as badass and crazy and villainous and, and killer. Um, you just don't know the fact that she's actually pregnant while doing all this stuff. Which is incredible. I'm, I'm, I, I can't imagine how she did all that. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty, well, you know, we got uh, we, we, we have some help. You know, we got a good stunt team and good coordinators and, and producers that made everything happen, so you'll barely even notice. Absolutely. Now, this is the first time you guys have actually gone in knowing that this is meant to be a finale and the end after, a two, after the two hours are over. Now, does this feel like the end? And if so, do you feel like it will have a conclusion that will satisfy, satisfy clock blockers everywhere? This is a show that never feels like the end anymore. Honestly, it's it, it, it's impossible to feel like that just because we've been revived two or three times, and you know, characters have been you know revived. You know, um, you know myself included. Uh, you know, I've I've almost died and or died. Uh, you know, a couple times now. Um, so it's hard to feel like that's over. And you know, we're done shooting, but we still don't even see the product for ourselves for, for a while until the show actually goes up. Um, and also the fans really aren't good with the show just ending. Um, so it's, it's a very weird feeling one I've never had in any other aspect of my career. Um, I've never been on a show that had this much um, effective fan base. Um, I've been on sort of cult shows or 
you know, really sort of too smart for themselves shows before, but mm-hmm. not one that had um, that came back from the dead this many times. So it's hard to feel, you know, it, it's it's also hard not to shake the feeling that, hey, maybe this could be a thing that we do every once in a while, keep bringing back a special, a sort of timeless special. And there clearly seems to be a hunger for it. Um, so it's a it's it's a it's a weird feeling. It does. It, it doesn't feel like the end. Um, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Um, I can't say if the fans will be satisfied. I can only hope that they will be. Um, but I can tell you that the show does what it does best, which is that it, it, it leaves itself open to a myriad of possibilities. Speaking of those possibilities, Malcolm, there's a lot of fan theories out there, whether it be Wyatt and Lucy are married in the future, all these different things out there. I know you can't confirm any of these things, and I wouldn't ask you to. What I will ask you is, are any of the fan theories that you've seen out there, do they actually happen? Yes. I'd say, but also keep in mind, I've, I've, my position, I get to see a breadth of theories. <laughs> so sure, right. That's why I'm making it vague on purpose. So, like, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it, like the realms of possibility and dimensions, you know, at some point you, 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 you come across the one that sits. Um, so that's sort of the, the widespread ideas I've seen on here. There are some that are like completely crazy that, <laughs> that I'm like never expected. Like all through the second season, I would see fan theories that I just wouldn't think about because I'm just too close to the story. So to me, it's, it almost feels like A to B to me. And, you know, right. I've had time to sit with it for a while. But there was like, I think there was like one person who like nailed it exactly. Um, and I was like, oh, okay. All right. It was almost like um, that character in a good place. The one guy who got like heaven, like 99% correct. Nice. Um, nice. That's, that's what it was like seeing like this one fan theory. I was like, oh, okay. Like, good, good job. Okay. All right. And then well, there's the whole, how did they um, know? <laughs> yeah. 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 How is that going to happen? But you know. That's the fun thing is it's a show that sparks imagination and sparks creativity. So, you know, if you're willing to go there, there's a lot of possibilities you can come up with. Now, Malcolm, before I let you go, before the movie was announced, I actually wrote an article about the possibility of Timeless maybe living on through comic books or graphic novels or something like that. Now, is that something that you'd like to possibly see should you guys not come back for another movie or something like that? Or and would you be interested in maybe writing something like that if you were given the opportunity? Well, you know, if anything, if anyone would write a comic book, it would be it would be Kripke, who's who's actually wrote a comic book um, before, I think called Kill Man or something like that. I actually have it um, in my room somewhere because um, I'm a big comic book guy. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd love to be a part of it. Look, I'd love to be a part of any version of this show after the special happens. You know, it's a it's it's a really important show, and I got to show so many sides of myself and shows so many aspects of what it's like to be a person of color in history and to represent, you know, for all the little, you know, nerds and geeks um, from places I'm from, like Brooklyn, you know, the, the characters from West side of Chicago. And so there are a lot of parallels between him and myself. I'm not nearly as smart as that character, but I was a kid who grew up in, you know, whatever kind of neighborhood and, and um, was going to super smart schools. And so, you know, to be able to finally represent that aspect of myself on television was a blessing and a gift, and I'd do it a million times over. Malcolm, if this really is the end of Timeless, if this really is the last thing that we see, if you had a final message for the fans of this show, what would it be? You know, it's it's funny. This is probably, usually I'm extremely sarcastic and observant, and I have all these sort of flippant things to say, but I think, you know, the spirit and the nature of this show is is one of hope and friendship, and I can't separate myself from that message. Um, you know, I, I think if they take anything from it, I think it's to look at the world, look at history, look at people, look at humans with an open eye and always look to them with love, support, understanding and intelligence before anything else. Can't wait to see the two hour, hopefully not finale, timeless movie that's going to be happening on Thursday, December the 20th, 8 p.m. Eastern on NBC. Make sure you're watching it a thousand times over, especially because, hey, let's go get Rufus back. It's Malcolm Barrett. Thank you so much, not just for joining us this week, but for a few great seasons on Timeless. Well, thank you for having me, and I appreciate you guys and the love. So great to talk with Malcolm Barrett. Hopefully not for one last time about Timeless. And I got to tell you, there's just so much genuine appreciation for the fans, not just from Malcolm, but from everybody involved in this show. I mean, think about how many times the fans have saved this show from the brink of cancellation or or post-cancellation 
as it were. I mean, it's it's amazing the commitment the fans have to the, for this show and the and the stuff that the fans are doing, the flying them, the the helicopters and the planes and and putting up the big ad in Times Square. It's just the lengths that fans will go through to save this show that they love so much and that I love so much too, by the way. That it's just absolutely incredible, and there's so much heart and soul. I can't wait, but I can, for the timeless movie that's going to be happening 8 o'clock December the 20th on NBC. Set every reminder you could possibly set to make sure you're watching this thing live. Also DVRing it so you can watch it over and over, and watch it on any streaming service you possibly could. Send that message to NBC that you want more timeless. I know you think that it... That not going to happen, but you know what? Stranger things have happened, and think about how many times this show has been saved, and even Malcolm said, it's hard to ever think that this is the end, so hopefully it won't be. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast, and uh, just a little bit of a programming note, our best of 2018 show is going to be coming up right before Christmas, the 10 best interview moments from the year, in no particular order, by the way, and if you've got a favorite moment, that you'd like to see included in the show, just let me know at Down and Nerdy757 on Twitter or on Instagram. Also, Facebook.com slash Down and Nerdy. Share your best interview moments from the past year, and maybe I'll include them in the show. There's been so many great ones. If you have a favorite, I would love to hear it, or just a favorite moment on the show in general from the past year. And thank you so much for all the support of the show. Again, thanks to NBC and Sony and the folks with Timeless for letting me chat with Malcolm Barrett this week. So looking forward to the Timeless movie. And it's been another great year, but you know, we'll get into that next week. But for now, remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd. Let that fan flag fly. Be good to your fellow nerds.